Now, I'm, I'm not sure if I should take it as a sign or not, but um, as the service was starting, there was, there was no table for me to preach from. And uh, then one of my, my friends said, um, when are you going back to Anderson? And uh, he said, well, you know, we've loved having you here and all, that's great, but, you know, we're just kind of ready for Matt to be back. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're in Malachi again this morning together. We're going to finish up Malachi. Matt's going to be back, not next week, but the week after that. So Malachi chapter 2 is where we're going to be, uh, actually 3 and 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, but I was going to begin by telling you a story. I actually uh, ran into a friend I haven't talked to in quite a while. I didn't realize that uh, she's from Long Island. I'm also from, uh, from New York, not from Long Island. Um, I'm actually from upstate New York. But I spent my grade school years in New York. And for me, one of my heroes was O.J. Simpson, right? I mean, actually, he was kind of like everybody's hero. We all kind of wanted to be O.J. because he was playing for the Buffalo Bills at that point in time, right? He'd won a Heisman. He's playing for the Buffalo Bills. So out on the playground, if we were playing football, everybody wanted to be O.J. We all had our number 32 jerseys. And, uh, you know, even then after he, he uh, finished with football, right? I mean, he was amazingly athletic and he was handsome. And he was articulate. And then he went into uh, acting and he made commercials he's either for uh, Hertz or Avis. I can't remember right. He's running. You got some of you are older. Remember, he's running through the, was it Hertz? Okay. Yeah, he's running through the airport, getting his rental car like OJ. I mean, OJ was just, he was just, he was the man. And then if you know the story or if you watched uh, ESPN 30 for 30, then this crazy day happens where you turn on the news and OJ's in a white Bronco slowly driving down the highway with his friend and he's got his head covered and it, it turns out that um, his ex-wife and her boyfriend had been murdered, and O.J. was the primary suspect, and we're all like, no way. Not, I mean, it's, I mean, inconceivable. I mean, O.J., like, if you knew him, he was just, he was amazing, and he was so kind and always smiling and good to people. We're like, this is absolutely impossible. And then, you know, it was just a sensational trial, right? I mean, every day that the trial was going on, it was on TV. <laughs> I mean, work stopped and we're watching the, the OJ trial. And as the evidence is presented, it, it's like, okay, OJ probably, he probably did it. He, he probably, he's probably guilty. And, you know, this, this childhood dream is crumbling, it's evaporating. And then right near the end of the trial, prosecutors, if you remember, right, they asked him to try on this glove that was all dried out and shrunken. And he had on a a rubber glove inside of that, and he puts it on, and his hand won't go in, and all of a sudden, the jury just flips, and they acquit him, and you're like, okay, wait, <laughs> what just happened, right? I mean, my, my childhood dream had crumbled. He's pretty clearly guilty, and now he's acquitted. He's off. There is some injustice just occurred. What, what happened here? Like, what, what happened? And, you know, it, it might be something sensational like an OJ trial, but uh, it could be something even more distant uh, where we see an injustice. There's genocide in Sudan, or maybe just in your personal life, where somebody treats you unjustly, or they treat you with disrespect. And in these moments, you think to yourself, God, are you not paying attention to what's happening? I mean, OJ travels, two people were murdered, and someone did the murder, and it seems like it was him, but he gets off, and there's genocide going on in Sudan. God, are you not paying attention to this continent? Lord, are you not paying attention to the slights in my life and the disrespect that I'm receiving? Lord, are, are you not aware? Are you not watching or, or, or are you just not able? Are you not powerful enough to intervene? And in those moments where we see all of these different injustices on a grand scale or in our personal lives, we, we are tempted. Right? We're tempted to maybe uh, give up and say, why bother, Lord? Right? Why should I bother to live a good life when the righteous are not rewarded and the unrighteous are not punished? Or maybe we're tempted to say, why bother? And I'm just going to live 
exactly as I see fit, and I'm going to pursue all the pleasure that I want in life. Right? That's an age-old struggle. And in Malachi's day, the people were really wrestling with this issue. I want, to, I want you to read their words with me together. Look at first in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. It says, you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied you? Uh, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Right? You see the dual issues. The, the righteous are not rewarded, and the unrighteous are not punished. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. You've said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only do doers of wickedness, not only are they built up, but also they test God and escape. Right? This, it, it's, a, it's an age-old challenge. It's an age-old problem. I was actually earlier this morning reads, reading Psalm 73. Do you remember Psalm 73? The psalmist just wrestles with this. He says, Lord, it looks like the unrighteous, man, they're just growing in wealth and they're growing in ease and they're growing in comfort. And you're not stepping in and punishing unrighteousness. On the other hand, I'm trying to walk purely, and I'm suffering, and I'm struggling. Lord, are you ever going to set things right? Now, part of the twist here in Malachi's day is that uh, the people who are complaining about God not intervening in the world and setting things right were actually the ones who were living unjustly. And that, too, is that's an old problem. Uh, it's reflected in Solomon's day. He wrote, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Right? Because we don't see it just happen in our own lives or in other nations and countries and other situations. Uh, it's tempting to say, well, l- let me go ahead and live however I choose to live. Or uh, Peter addresses, well, in Second Peter 3, he said, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. God's not intervening. Will he ever intervene? And you know, in Peter's theology, he was actually living in the last days. So if he was in the last days, we're really in the last days, right? And we see all of these injustices occurring, and we say, God, are, are you aware? Can you not see, or do you not care, or are you not able to step in and set things right? The result is we fall sometimes into one of two categories. So those who are deceived, we don't believe God's going to fix it, right? so we choose to live recklessly, or we just become discouraged. We're trying to live righteously, but then we get to the point where we say, God, why bother? The righteous are not rewarded and the unrighteous are not punished. Malachi has a word for that, and it's this. Live today in light of that day. Uh, today is not the final day. Um, today is not the end of your story. It's not the end of the story of history. There is coming a day when God will, in fact, set all things right. And the way that we live well today when we see things not being set right is that we live for that day, right? And we live for uh, that day in hope and anticipation that God will, in fact, set all things right someday. I want you to read with me now in chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In this final section of Malachi, which actually covers chapters 3 and 4, the theme is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is an enormously significant and broad topic 
in the Bible. It doesn't actually refer to a single day, but it refers to uh, a series of events that mark God intervening again in the, in the world, right? So the day of the Lord is God's intervention in human history. It seems like moment to moment, day to day, he, he's not intervening. Well, he will, and it's called the day of the Lord, right? When God breaks in again into human history and he intervenes, and we have hope and confidence that he will do that because he's done it in the past. Let me give you just a few illustrations. Uh, listen to this description of Noah's day. And see if it sounds um, kind of eerily reminiscent, reminiscent of what's happening today. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of the Lord, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. In other words, uh, God saw it. But he wasn't oblivious. He saw it. And he also saw that Noah was righteous, and so he rewarded Noah and protected him, and then he punished the unrighteous, and he removed them from the face of the earth. God intervened. God intervened, and so humanity was able to start over, but you'll know just apparently a few years later, rather than being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it, taking the knowledge of God's honor and glory to, to all of the ends of the earth, instead, they came together and they said, you know what, we're going to protect ourselves from God ever flooding the earth again. We don't trust him, so what we're going to do is we're going to build a tower, right? And that's the point of baking the bricks thoroughly. In case God does actually send a flood again, well, we're going to be strong enough with our baked bricks and we're going to be tall enough that we can rise above it. We'll reach actually to the heavens, and it says, and we will make a name for ourselves, we're not going to make a name for the Lord. We're going to make a name for, for ourselves. And so what does God do? He says, well, he sees that their wickedness and their coming together and their unity is getting greater and greater and greater. And so even to protect them from themselves, he scatters them and gives uh, different languages. So they can't communicate and they can't cooperate. And he spreads them out. Years later, he's chosen a family, Israel, and they're about 70 people. They uh, experience a famine and so they have to go down to Egypt. And as they're in Egypt, they grow and they grow and they grow. They come become several million people, but because of their size and strength, the Egyptians say, well, now they're a threat to us, and they begin to oppress them, and they enslave them, and God's chosen people are slaves in in Egypt. And they cry out, and they say, Lord, aren't you paying attention? Don't you hear? Don't you see? Are you not able to rescue us? And God intervenes, right? He intervenes, and he rescues his people. And they're told over and over and over again to look back to the exodus as validation or proof that they can look forward to the day of the Lord and trust him that he will intervene in their lives and in the history of the earth and set all things right. He will reward righteousness and he will punish injustice. So I want you to read with me again chapter 3 and verse 1 in which God spoke to his people and he said this, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, can anyone remember, uh, a few weeks ago we started the book of Malachi, and I told you that the name Malachi means what? Anybody remember? Did you write it in the margin? Okay, now you're going to write it in the margin, just in case I do come back next week. Thank you, my messenger, right? It's right there in your little marginal note. My messenger, right? Malachi is named aptly my messenger. And the Lord says through Malachi, he says through my messenger, I'm going to send you another messenger. And that messenger is going to get you prepared for another messenger. In other words, right here in 3.1, there are three Malachi's, right? There are three of the Lord's messengers. So through Malachi, he says, I'm going to send you my messenger, and he's going to prepare the way for my messenger is going to prepare him to do what? 
Read with me chapter 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, against the widow and the widow and the orphan, those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, of sons of Jacob, are not consumed. 3, 1 through 6 is, is really, in a sense, it's a word of, of warning. Right? If you believe in the Lord, but you don't believe that he's returning and setting things right, and you're choosing to live in an unrighteous manner, you know, he's going to purify you. Right? The day of the Lord will be a day in which he sets all things right. For those of you who are discouraged, he will set all things right. For those of you who are deceived, he will set all things right. So now live differently. Live in light of the day of the Lord. And what's interesting in these last two chapters is six times he talks about the day of the Lord. Right? Two in chapter three, four in chapter four. The day of the Lord is coming. Again, not a 24-hour period, but a series of events in which God sets all things right on the face of the earth. And so the day of the Lord ultimately, in a sense, is um, it's an intervention. And what's interesting is um, there are actually two interventions. Now, if you were living in Malachi's day, you wouldn't have necessarily been able to see this. Now, we look back and we see the day of the Lord, in a sense, really comes twice. There's a, a first intervention and then a second intervention. Again, let's read chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger... And he will clear the way before me. Well, who's he talking about here? Uh, I want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Malachi is, cha- is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. He says this. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Malachi quotes Isaiah chapter 40, but who is Malachi talking about? I want you to turn back to Malachi again, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So who's Malachi talking about? Who's Isaiah talking about? Well, apparently they're talking about Elijah. That God's going to send Elijah back to prepare the way of the Lord. And when the Lord comes back and he comes into his holy temple, he's going to set everything right. Now, turn to the Gospels. And you may see where I'm going here. John chapter 1 and verse 19. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Messiah. So they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet that Moses promised? He said, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. He goes, well, you know, actually, I'm not Elijah, I'm John. My name is John, I'm not Elijah, but I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prediction and prophecy and promise. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, I am the messenger of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Let the valleys be lifted up. Let the mountains and hills be made low. Why? So that the king can have a smooth travel to his temple, to his place of worship, and to his palace. I am that voice. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 7. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone yet greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're actually willing to accept him, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's going on here? John says, no, I'm not Elijah. And Jesus said, well, actually, he is Elijah. I mean, he just doesn't realize who he is. What's he, he's, he's saying, no, no, he's not literally Elijah, but he's the one who can fulfill the role of Elijah. He can, he's the one who's come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to set uh, the pathway so that I can come and receive my kingdom, if you are willing to accept it. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, which isn't just about listening, it's about responding. It's about responding. If you're willing to respond to John's message and get ready, then you will receive me third messenger, right? and I'll come into my holy temple, and I'll set all things right. But how did they respond to John? Well, if you look in Mark chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says, but I say to you, Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it was written of him. John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and what did they do? Well, a few believed his message, but then uh, Herod put him in prison, took off his head, and even when John was in prison, remember John sitting there in prison, he's saying, um, Jesus, are, are you the one, <laughs> right? Are you, are you the messenger, or should we look for someone else? And why did John have such serious doubts? Because he was preparing the way for the Messiah to do what? Set all things right. And so if he's the messenger of the Messiah, he probably shouldn't be in prison, he should be in the palace, People didn't, shouldn't be looking for him in the wilderness. They should be looking for him uh, in, in power and comfort and ease. Instead, John finds himself in prison, and then John's life is taken, and people begin to wonder, what, is he really the Messiah? Because the Messiah doesn't lose. Right? The Messiah wins. The Messiah conquers all his enemies. The Messiah sets all things right. But Jesus didn't. Right? Jesus chose to take the loss. Why? Why did God allow his messenger to be defeated? 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. 
The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why does God not set all things right right now? Because he's exercising patience. He doesn't intervene in every injustice. Otherwise, it would crush all of us. Because there's, there's brokenness and there's sin in all of our lives. There's brokenness and sin in our friends' lives who don't know Jesus. And so he's made this time of patience in which we have the opportunity first to set our own lives right and realize it does matter how we live. It does matter before the Lord how we live. Don't be deceived. But also it gives this, this moment in which we realize God is being patient. Someday he will set all things right. And now we have this moment to tell our friends and our families who don't know Jesus through the way that we live, through the words that we speak, that he is coming again. And there will be accountability, but there's life in Jesus. And there's hope in Jesus. And so I would say the, the simplest application of this uh, point this morning would be this. Uh, if you've never believed in Jesus, believe in him today. Right? If, if you look around at the world and say, well, you know, I'm, I get away with a lot of stuff. You do, and there's a reason for that. It's because God's being patient in your life. God's being patient in your life to bring you to that point of repentance where you, you see what sin is and you say, I don't want that any longer. Instead, what I want is I want Jesus. And you have that moment where you say, okay, I understand this idea of the gospel that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but I understand that he also died for my sins, and I do have sin. I do have rebellion in my life. And I thank you, God, for giving Jesus to remove that debt. Right? That's the first and clearest application. The second is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, it matters how you live. And we'll talk about why it matters specifically in a minute, but it does matter. Because even for us as believers, our lives are accountable before the Lord. And in his grace and kindness, right, he's giving us time to see that we need him and we need to turn to him. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. And I want you to notice, just there's a really interesting, um, maybe confusing statement that Jesus makes. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. A little easier for us to see in hindsight, but I want you to imagine that you were listening to this for the first time. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. And this is from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. Then he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now what's really strange about uh, this this verse that he quotes here is he actually stops in the middle of a sentence. In verse 19, it says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, he takes the scroll, he rolls it up, he sets it down, but he actually didn't finish the sentence. The sentence reads and says, and to uh, execute the vengeance of our God. (laughs) So he stopped middle of the sentence. Why? Because he wasn't coming to fulfill that part yet. He was coming to proclaim release to the captives. Are you captive? Are you, are you enslaved? Are your friends and family captive? Are they, are they enslaved? Are they imprisoned to sin? Is there injustice in their own lives that they need to be freed from and released from? Jesus says, this is why I came. And he closes the scroll not because he's not going to fulfill that second part, but because that's going to come later, right? And, and, you know, we see that now, but at that moment in time, they must have wondered, why did he stop in the middle of the sentence and not talk about the day of vengeance 
in the day in which God executes justice on the earth. They must have wondered. Now we look back and realize, no, Jesus is going to come again. And right now there's this gap in human history. It's called the church. And we're here on a mission. We're here for a purpose, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord in which people can come to Jesus. But there will be a second day that's coming, right? A second intervention or a second uh, day of the Lord. What's that one going to look like? Well, I'm going to give you you a, a scheme that I think is how it's going to play out. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time. Uh, I, I, I hold this with about 70% certainty. Okay, um, There are a lot of godly people who disagree about how uh, future events will play out, uh, who love Jesus, who read their Bible, they're faithful to it, they think that it, it teaches truth, they're, they're on the same page with us, but they think things are going to play out differently. There is one common theme that we all believe, Jesus will return. Right? Jesus will return. And there's another theme, which is this. We're all going to be a bit surprised. Right? We think we've got it all mapped out, but uh, there are things probably hidden in the text or things not yet revealed that are going to cause us to go, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. And it won't disrupt all my theology, but I think I, I, think I have an idea of how it's going to play out. So I'm going to give this to you. Now, don't hold, this, uh, don't hold me to this as gospel, but this is my best piecing together of the events that are going to transpire when Jesus comes and he intervenes again. Okay, so this is what I think it's going to look like. Right now, we're in the church age, and I think the next event that's going to occur is what's called the rapture of the church. If you want to turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, this is where the rapture is described. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And that word rapture is actually from the Greek word that means uh, caught up, right? Caught up. Verse 17, we'll be caught up. Uh, I think it's a distinct event from the return of the Lord. Not everybody agrees with me, which is fine. But I think it's a distinct event because you'll notice that the Lord comes and he doesn't return to earth. Instead, he comes and we meet him together in the clouds. And the church is taken off of the earth. And then the real intervention of God in human history begins. With the church having been removed from the earth, God begins to uh, a process of setting all things right. The next uh, period of time is called the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation Period. It's seven years of incredible difficulty uh, on the earth. Jesus predicted this. If you look in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21... Matthew 24, verse 21... He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, and nor will it ever. Now, I don't think that the tribulation period is, is uh, marked by the rapture itself. I think the tribulation begins when uh, an antichrist emerges and he makes a covenant with Israel. Uh, antichrist can mean against Christ or against Messiah, but it can also mean uh, substitute or in place of. There's one who's a substitute for Jesus the Messiah. And one of the ways that he reveals himself is that he's able to create peace. Particularly between Arabs and Jews. Somehow he's able to create enough peace that Jews are, are, are allowed to go back onto the Temple Mount and they're allowed to worship again alongside of Muslims, apparently. I don't know if you noticed, uh, but just yesterday there was a huge clash because some Jews wanted to get up onto the Temple Mount. Right? That doesn't work well today at all. But somehow this... Uh, Messiah, and people believe in him as Messiah, is able to create peace, particularly in the Middle East. 
And he makes a covenant with Israel, and he, he allows them to restore their worship. And so they look to him, and they think that he's Messiah, but halfway through that seven-year period, he breaks covenant with them. And we're told that's the point in time Zechariah talks about in Zechariah 14. He says, now they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son. Right? They'll realize this was not the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah, and there's going to be a mass revival in Israel. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11. He says, thus at this point in time, when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, all Israel will be saved. There will be a mass revival, and Israel will turn to Jesus. And as a result of their rejection by the Antichrist, and they're turning to Jesus as the true Messiah, they're going to be persecuted incredibly. And it's going to be a time of great distress. It's called Jacob's Troubles. That's the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. At the end of that tribulation period, the the nations are gathering for war against uh, God's Messiah, and there's this anticlimactic battle where Jesus comes in and he just wipes all of them out. That's the second coming. And again, some people don't believe that there's this rapture uh, before that. They believe just in the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth. I think the two events are distinct. But you read about the return of Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. If you want to turn there, last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. John writes in his vision, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is not the image that we normally think of when we think of Jesus. We think of Jesus meek and mild. We think of Jesus surrendering himself to crucifixion. But when he returns, he's on a white horse, right? He is, he's the general commanding his armies and he destroys his enemies, right? He will set all things right. He will bring righteousness upon the earth. And then he will establish his rule and his reign on earth, John tells us, for a thousand years. And some people think that that's just a, a figure of speech for a long time. Some people think it's literally a thousand years. Another way you could describe it is the Davidic kingdom. And it's the promises made uh, to Israel through David that God would establish his kingdom on earth. It's described in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him. For a thousand years. Whether it's a thousand or whether it's a really long time, I personally think it's literally a thousand years. Um, one of the reasons I think that is because uh, if you look at the, the numbers in the book of Revelation, there are other numbers that um, were described very literally in the Old Testament. Um, if we back up to the Great Tribulation, the reason that I don't think the, the church is there is because the purpose of the tribulation is to bring Israel to repentance. Uh, if you're interested in this more deeply, go back and read Daniel chapter 9 this afternoon. Daniel 9, Daniel talks about 70 weeks 
which are 77-year periods. And those first 69 weeks, or seven-year periods, have already taken place. They begin, marked by, Daniel said, there's, there's a king who's going to rise, and he's going he's to make a covenant with Israel, or promise Israel that they can go back and rebuild. That was Artaxerxes. Right? And from the time that he gives that promise that they can go back and rebuild, and Nehemiah, in this context, went back and he rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls, until the time that Messiah is uh, walking into Jerusalem and ultimately betrayed, he says there are going to be 69 weeks or 69 periods of seven. And from the time, literally, that Artaxerxes issued his decree to go back to Israel and the triumphal entry was 77-week periods, literally. Literally, 483,000 days on a lunar calendar, Jesus walked in, right? A literal time. But then there's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. We call that the church. But the 70th week will be a seven-year period. I don't think the church will be there because I don't think the church, uh, in a sense, uh, it was designed for us. It's designed to lead Israel to repentance, but the church has already believed, right? So we're taken out. Israel is brought to repentance. Jesus returns and he establishes his rule and reign on earth. I think it's a thousand years because Revelation says it's a thousand years. I think it's literal. I think it's literal. It might not be, but I think that it is. But at the end of that period of time in which Jesus is reigning on earth, right, there's going to be a judgment. Because during that period of time, uh, there will be those who still rebel against the Lord. But justice will be immediate, right? Kind of like we want it now, right? We want, well, actually, we want justice now uh, for everyone else. We want mercy for ourselves. But that's another point, right? At that point in time, right, in the kingdom, Justice immediately, right? And so anybody who's rebellious, they kind of go underground because they realize punishment will come quickly. But at the end of that period of time, John tells us in Revelation, Satan's released and he's allowed to deceive the nations once again. They rise up one more time in rebellion against Jesus and he fully and finally removes them from the earth. And he creates a new heavens and a new earth in which there is no unrighteousness and there will never be any, any unrighteousness. And he judges those who have rejected him. That's called the great white throne judgment. If you look in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. I want you to notice that there's a book and then there's books. The book is the book of life. And if you choose in this lifetime to believe in Jesus, your name is written in the book of life and it will never be erased. Or you have eternal life. If you choose in this lifetime not to believe in Jesus, then your name is not in that book. But your life is evaluated by the books. Right? The books are, as he says, uh, the deeds which are written. So I've, I've had non-Christian friends say to me from time to time, well, I don't see how you could even imagine you know, that uh, Hitler wouldn't be punished more severely than others. I go, well, he will. <laughs> because the books are, are a record of people's deeds. And God judges every person according to their deeds at the great white throne. If they don't believe, their lives are taken up and they're evaluated. Right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not here. Right? You, don't, you don't have to face this and you don't have to fear this ever. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should acknowledge But your life also will be evaluated. Right? It does matter, even as a believer, how you live. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. It's done. God saves you. God rescues you. You belong to him. He seals you by his Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You're adopted into his family. You're his son. You're his daughter. You cannot be removed. But even if you're a son or a daughter, if you don't live well and you don't live wisely, it's going to be evaluated. If you live wisely, that will be rewarded. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that talks about this evaluation. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10. 
Paul writes, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. So what's the foundation? Well, the foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the building? The building is the church. It's the body of Christ. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." You see the significance of the imagery here? Your life is given to you to invest in things that matter. What matters? People. People last. People matter to God. So to the degree that you invest your life in people finding Jesus and following him with their lives, that's a life that lasts. That's gold and silver and precious stones. You come to this point, it's called judgment seat of Christ. Right? Great white throne is for those who reject God. Judgment seat of Christ is for the church. You stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you've lived well, you've lived wisely. He says, well done. Right? Well done, good and faithful servant. If you said, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I know I have life that lasts forever, but you choose to live your own way, well, then your life is like wood, hay, and straw. And it says, Whew, it was wasted. It says, but he himself is saved, yet so is through fire. Right? You enter into eternity, but man, you smell like smoke, so to speak. Right? I mean, it's just... And, and there will be a moment of reckoning where we all look back and we say, why didn't I give everything to Jesus? Why didn't I? And sometimes the Lord gives us moments, like literally this moment, where, where we're forced to stop and realize, maybe I'm not living as wisely as I should live. Thank you, Lord, for the confidence that I have, that, that I have life and I have life eternal. But out of that confidence, not, let, let me not just... Uh, disregard your grace, but let me live in gratitude for your grace. Because the amazing thing is this, God saves you by grace through faith, right? You, didn't, you don't earn eternal life. It is absolutely a free gift. And then he fills you with his spirit, empowers you with his spirit, and it says in Ephesians 10, he, he lays out these good works for you to walk in. And then through the power of his spirit, he allows you to accomplish these good works, and then he re- rewards you for what he accomplished through you. <laughs> it does not get better than that. He says, all I want you to do is to walk in those moments that I give you every day to reflect the beauty of life in relationship with Jesus. And then let me reward you for it. So what's the application of this? Application is this. Uh, don't, don't be deceived and don't be discouraged either. Right? Don't, don't be deceived and think it doesn't matter how you live. It does. Our lives will be evaluated. Uh, but don't live in, in fear of that. Live in hope. Because Jesus will set all things right. Turn back with me to Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and he heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare, prepare my own possession and I will spare them as man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So in that day, they're clamoring. They're saying, Lord, are you going to set everything right? Right? Are you going to come back? Are you going to return? Right? And then he says, yeah, I will return. And some go, oh, that's a little bit frightening too. Says, yeah, it is. <laughs> Maybe you should, you should live differently. 
But those who are discouraged say, oh, thank you, Lord. We're going to get together with one another. And we're going to put it in writing that we choose to live for the Lord. And it says, the Lord heard. He was paying attention. He says, you belong to me. Thank you. Thank you for making that choice to live well, to live wisely. Church, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons we need community. We need people around us. We say, you know what? Together, we choose to live for the Lord. As Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is how we're going to live. We're not going to allow ourselves to be deceived and think it doesn't matter how we live. We're not going to get discouraged. Things aren't set right immediately. They will be. Instead, we're going to live today in light of that day. Now, I want to give you a visual illustration as we close. Um, let's see if this kind of locks the point into your mind. Anybody remember uh, these? are called stereograms. <laughs> They're really popular a few years back. Um, if you look at it just right, if you look at it just right, it's, a, it's actually a shark and two fish swimming. Can anybody, anybody pick it up? It, yeah, it took me like 10 minutes. It's a shark and two fish. You, what you have to do, you kind of have to like look through it and then you see it and then this 3D image emerges, right? And I know right now, like you've forgotten everything that I said. It's like mesmer- it's mesmerizing, isn't it? Because all you see is dots and squiggles. You're like, there's nothing there, right? There's nothing there. There was a Seinfeld episode, right, where Mr. Pitt went crazy because he couldn't see the image. Yeah, go back and watch that scene. Um, I won't leave it up for too long and make you crazy. Trust me, it, it, there's a shark and two fish on it. The trick is this. If you, if you, can't, if you can't get it... Um, Pull one up on your computer screen today. And what you do is if, put your nose right on the screen. Right, You can't do it right now, right? But put your, you put your nose right on the screen, and then you slowly pull back from the screen. And that kind of tricks your eyes and your brain so you're able to look through the image and see the three-dimensional thing. So, but here's the problem. Right now, all you, you look at and all you focus on, okay, uh, me, look at me. <laughs> All you focus on are the, the lines and the dots. You got to look through the lines and the dots. This is what happens in our lives. We look at just the lines and the dots. We, can very, we can become very myopic. Right? The circumstances of the moment or the circumstances of the day, we've got to look through today and say, this is not the final day. This is not the end of the story. God is doing something remarkable and beautiful. Can we look through it and live today in light of that day and not become so consumed with the lusts, the temptations, the fears, the worries? I literally was driving in saying, Lord, I think that you're dealing with me in the area of fear. Since my kids aren't here, sitting here, I'll tell you, it's in the area of, with my kids. Lord, what's going to happen in their lives? And I extrapolate way out, you know, and I see them either, you know, changing the world or in a ditch, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, Lord, you're in, you are sovereign and you are in control and you are working in the world today and you will set all things right. Let me not be deceived. Let me not be discouraged. Let me live today in light of that day. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to guard and protect us from becoming just so myopic on the circumstances of this life. The injustices we see out there in the world, the injustices we see in our own lives personally, which often seem to consume us even more than anything else. And we forget that you do see, that you do care, and you will set all things right. And, and as we wait for that point of justice, Lord, you're, you're refining us. You're teaching us to be people of character. 
and through us, even as we suffer injustice, as you're allowing us to, to proclaim the gospel through our words and through our lives to friends and family who don't know you. So, Father, I pray that we would live purposely, intentionally today for that day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you. Keep your mind on that day this week.